This episode of the podcast is brought to you by my company, Hornswording. Now, over the last couple of weeks, we've made some exciting new changes to our mead range, and in particular, our Yorkshire mead. So what we've done is we've completely rebranded, relabeled, and we've also added a couple of new flavours. Now, before I tell you about the new flavours, I want to tell you a little bit about the mead production, because this stuff is really something special. It's made at a micro meadery just on the outskirts of York, and it's run by a fellow called Pete Allenson, and this guy does everything himself. He keeps the bees, he sustainably harvests the honey from his own bees, he then ferments the honey to make the mead, he bottles the mead, he labels the mead, he sends it out to us, I mean this guy does everything and, and mead is what he does and that's part of why I think this stuff is so amazing because it has such a short journey from production to bottling to end user um, and I think it really is a special product. So we have our three traditional ones that you might have seen on the website before which are mead of Serenos, our mead of Brigid and our mead of Morrigan. The Morrigan is an elderberry, the Serenos is a heather honey and the mead of Brigid is a traditional. Now on top of that, what we've done is we've added a spice mead, which is Surtur's mead. We have Loki's Curse, which is a pineapple and coconut mead. And then we also have Tia's Sacrifice, which is a whiskey and cherry mead. And I mean, that stuff is absolutely beautiful. All these meads are available in 75 cl bottles and a 25 cl bottle, so you can sort of pick your size. On the website, we also pair it in a gift set where you get a 25 cl bottle and a small drinking horn. Perfect for gifting or a little treat for yourself even. Even if you don't like mead, just it's worth going and looking at this stuff just for the artwork and for the bottles. Saxon Storyteller has done the artwork and I mean, he's absolutely nailed it with these. The, the labels look beautiful and I'm really proud of it. I'm sure you can tell. So just pop over to the website, hornsofodin.com. You get 10% off for listening to the show with the discount code HORNS10. So you should pop that in at checkout so you're going to get 10% off your order, Horns 10, and honestly, just try this stuff out. It really is, I think, the best mead available. Right, let's jump into the show. Welcome to the Nordic Mythology Podcast. I'm Daniel Farron, co-owner of the company Horns of Odin, and I'm joined, as always, by Dr. Matthias Nordvig. Hello, everyone. This time we're joined by Helena Hals, who's a historian and author, and um, has studied, uh, among other things, the Sami at the University of Troms in Norway. Welcome to the show, Helena. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Thank you for joining us. I know we, we've tried to set this one up a few times and we've had bumps in the road, I think, and things have come up on both ends. So it's nice to finally finally get here and do the show. Yeah, I agree. Okay, let's let's talk about the, uh, the Sami, because this is something that I know absolutely nothing about. I'm quite embarrassed that I know very little. Um, and I'm going to say this because I don't ever mind sounding stupid on the podcast, I guess, that my only real our first introduction of the Sami was from Vikings, the TV show, when Bjorn has that little interaction with the lady that comes down from the mountain and he marries. And that's the only time I've ever, or at least the first time I heard of them. And I'm, I'm sure there's plenty of people listening to this that are also in that position. So I think we should just start at the beginning of who they are or who they were. Are they still... <laughs> Do they still exist? They, they still exist, yes. <laughs> Who they are then. Thank you. <laughs> See, that's, that's the ignorance that, that you're dealing with, Helena. So I do apologize. <laughs> it's okay. Uh, yeah, so the Sami, I think uh, when talking uh, about them from a historical point of view, the easiest way would be to think about language. Uh, so the first people who came to Norway, or what is present-day Norway, they didn't arrive at one time. They didn't arrive all together, small groups from uh, different directions. And what we see is that uh, we have some groups belonging to the Germanic uh, language tree, uh, language family, and we have other groups uh, talking in languages which belong to the Uralian language group. Uh, so today we could you know, talk about uh, ethnicity, but it's very difficult talking about it uh, because um, in the beginning, you know, these uh, groups of people, they didn't um, necessarily express themselves so culturally. 
um, what, what happens is that in the you know in the moments they meet each other, they make contact and they meet other groups with other languages and other um, um, maybe other traditions and other way of uh, life. They start to accentuate these differences and they start to show which group they belong to. So you could have like these, uh, I don't know, like like hairstyle and makeup and, uh, you know, uh, ornamentation, stuff like that. So through these differences, they get more visibly as time goes on. But in the beginning, like in the Iron Age, it's very difficult to pinpoint. And also because these groups... Um, in some areas they were isolated, while in other areas they worked together, they influenced each other and had these long lasting uh, friendship ties and even, you know, marriage and even, uh, so, so these, these groups, they interlock and they get intertwined also with the DNA. And then it becomes a whole question, what is uh, yeah, ethnicity and what is, <laughs> how to divide them. So, I don't know, the most fruitful way of thinking is not to have a rigid line in the middle, but rather think of it like we have hybrids, we have groups, and they uh, have this, uh, this identity with the group, not necessarily with either Euralian or Germanic, but with their own group. And we have these crossing lines. Yes, it's... But today, um, the Sami have this um, very recognizable um, uh, <laughs> outfit. Yeah, you know, they, they wear it on, like on the national day. And also there is a Norwegian one uh, and it looks very uh, different and it's very recognizable. So most people today, when they think of Sami, they have that image. They think about the Sami uh, and the lifestyle from the last century. And at that point, it was very different from the Norse population. So, yeah. Yeah, when I was when I was in Oslo, we went to the is it the National Cultural Museum? Yeah. And some of the the, the Sami outfits in there are absolutely stunning. There's some really beautiful garments. But I'm guessing, like you said, they're more of a modern a modern thing. Yeah, but you can see like the techniques. They were used in like by both groups and they are very influenced by each other. So you can see like patterns overlapping and also yeah, like uh, ornamentation styles and then forms and shapes. But I, I like it. You know, it's a very romantic thing. It's very um, it's it's very two people building this, you know, this country together. Mm -hmm. And that becomes very clear when you study the early history. Absolutely. Yeah, I think it's, <clears throat> I think a lot of people just jump to Vikings or at least to what they consider would be Vikings and, and completely forget about maybe the Sami or their influences they had on the country, um, which is a shame, really. It's almost like an afterthought, I think, to most people, if, if even a thought at all. Um, so just to get back to this, you mentioned Euralian. <laughs> uh, well, it's um, it's it's a whole different uh, language tree. It's 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 the same tree that has today's um, Hungarian Finnish um, language in it, but it's it's um, I should have had a picture. Google it. It's it's way better than me explaining. But the point is, is that it's very far apart from the Germanic. It's a very um, wide gap. But the cool thing is, is that back then, what we see is that uh, words were um, adapt like um, taken into the other language. So, for example, the Norwegian word for fox, you know, the animal, uh, is rev, and that is from from a Sami word, and it was adapted at a very early point in time. And it's it's very interesting for uh, like a, someone studying language or a historian, um, because the words adapted, they tell a bit about uh, life back then. So the, um, the trading goods, like the, the stuff that the Sami uh, 
specialized in because they knew it was valuable for the other group. Uh, those type of words, like uh, related to furs, uh, sea mammals, land mammals, hunting, trapping, that stuff. A lot of Sami words are uh, taken into the, the Norwegian language. And the other way around, we have words related to farm life, like grains and dairy, uh, iron, stuff like that. And you can see it's um, so they they traded a lot and it was um, it was very profitable for both parties and very important to understand uh, the growth of and, and all the whole basis of the Viking Age, really, the resource basis. And it's often forgotten. You, you just said the Sami aren't mentioned that often. And it's true, but it's also the same with the northern region. Um, most series and films and documentaries, they talk about the situation in the south. And they show villages and big trading centers with a lot of buildings, you know. And it's... Um, and they focus on that, but they forget about the whole um, resource flow from the north. Yeah, I mean, even even from before the Viking Age, we have Borg in Lofoten, right? Who, uh, where, which is a is a, a center of trade and power um, that is that is uh, taking in uh, items uh, that you can identify their origin all the way to Spain or North Africa in some cases as well. And of course, sending uh, material, presumably um, hunted furs and also reindeer, right, uh, southwards. So, so yeah, you're totally right. There's, you know, when it comes to Norwegian history writing, and there's, there's a lot of focus on Vestlandet and, uh, and, and the general Bergen area, right? <laughs> or the uh, Viking uh, uh, stretch with uh, Vestfold. Um, there's, there's so much more to be done and worked on when it comes to the North and how the North was a like, basis for a lot of, like accumulating a lot of wealth in, in the South. When you go way back, you can see that the northern region has been uh, growing very steadily, very um, uh, continuously throughout the whole Iron Age, just getting bigger, more powerful. Um, and, and I have this very um, different scenario back like in the south, where you have all these internal wars. It's very... Uh, unstable it's it's uh, and also you can see it when you look at population growth um, it, it's a very big difference and it's only because the north you know they they were the losers at the end you know when Norway was unified as one country they lost and then it's of course it's the winners who tell history and it's uh, it's kind of forgotten. But when you look at the big lines, it's it's the northern region which is the most uh, steady and powerful and um, peaceful, and just grows and grows and grows all throughout. And it's just at the very end, you know, that they they lose. Yeah, no. As, as you say, the winners they write history and and they lie. They lie so much. <laughs> I'm talking to you, Snorri Sturluson, through the ages here. Holy shit, those that Ames Klingla compilation, my friend. <laughs> There's a lot of uh, uh, things to be said for a, a very strong focus on the western, southwestern part. And um, he, I mean, he's got his stories about Hokon the Good who goes to uh, uh, Trondelag and Murder and all that stuff. And and that is all, you know, manufactured history that Snorri is making. Sure. He just had a small area in the Western, um, you know, and he, he had some alliances, but he didn't unify the whole because it was already unified. It's just, you know, the whole North was already a stable network of uh, chieftains. And uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. That's why they're busy talking about all the trolls that live in the whole local land. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'd lie. If I if I won the war, I'd lie. I'd be like, oh, <laughs> they're all rubbish. <laughs> I'm really good. Of course you would. <laughs> we do the same with ourselves. You know, you tell your story about who you are. 
all throughout your life again and again and every time it's different you know you tell yourself a different story about you now compared to what you did for 10 years ago and so history doesn't exist it's just our own narrative uh, that gives us meaning and uh, identity and unless you're looking for pity you're always a badass in those stories right of course uh, the, yeah if i if i was writing it it would be one of two things either they were just really rubbish and i'd say like they smell or something you know just just really dig in or they'd be like all seven foot tall giant humans and i'd be like yeah and i beat them so mm. what does that say about me <laughs> that's <laughs> the, that's the way that it'd go and i if I do that, then no doubt that that's been done throughout history many, many times. But the thing with the Norwegian sources is very interesting because, um, you know, when they write about history, they write about their, um, you know, about heathens. So you have this very important uh, Christian viewpoint. But with the sources from here and also, of course, from, from Iceland, they were not talking about any heathen. They were talking about their own forefathers. So then in these sources, you also get these explanations, you know, um, so that it would be more acceptable for present day readers, their public from then, um, back then, uh, how to um, relate to these heathens, you know, and how can we be proud of heathen forefathers? And I, I love it. It's so fascinating, especially when you, uh, can find several sources describing the same event or several editions of the same saga. It's so cool because you can see that there are alterations and it's, it's, it's almost it's like, you know, studying psychology. It's fascinating to, to discuss stuff like that. You know, why did they make those changes? Why did they feel it was necessary? Mm-hmm. So would the would the Sami have come when they migrated, or at least the people who became the, the Sami tribes, would they have come up through Finland and around that way, or would they have just trickled up through from the south of Norway? Yeah, mo- mostly from from Finland, like from uh, north and then down. But it's it's difficult. Um and also, of course, also from the interior, so through Sweden. It depends a bit on when you're talking. Like um, in the beginning, when the you know the ice was retreating, so the very first people, they had to come along the coast because that was the area where the ice first disappeared. So we can see some uh, spots with very early uh, habitation, and people can you know they came with. Um, the um, boats, uh, canoes, stuff like that, but also walking along the coast from the north. So it's like, and it's very difficult to pinpoint who was first. It's, um, it's, and of course it doesn't matter at all because it's just small groups and they came in the same period of time. And with every new discovery, you know, we, yeah, this is a bit older, this is a bit older, but I think the most, a healthy point of view would be to say that they came uh, at the same time in different groups uh, in different areas so i mean it's cold and rugged up there um so what makes them stick around there and not i guess carry on down to the to the south of norway where it may be a little bit easier to to live well the land is is very rich on resources it's um, and remember that, uh, like along the coastal region, it's not that harsh. The winters are actually mild, and the summers are are nice. It's the interior which is tougher. Uh, so the coastal region, you have this. Um, yeah, it's yeah, it's it's both. When you think of all the resources, you have these. Uh, small areas where you have both uh, in like um, fresh water, you have the freshwater fish, you have uh, a natural harbor, like, as, you know, before you could build a harbor, you would have this uh, landing space for your, uh, for your boats. You would have a hunting area nearby. Um, 
even uh, bog ore, you know, to make iron, uh, um, uh, even though that wasn't done as much here in the north because they likely uh, they um, imported everything from uh, from Plundelag. But anyway, you could have you could have it all, you know, if you were to um, find a unique, perfect spot where you had all the resources available to you, it would be here. While in the south, people would, um, you know, there was not enough land. It was, um, um, it's more rocky as well. Um, you don't have the, it's, it's not the, it's not the same diversity as you have up here. If you're a good Arctic hunter, it's a great spot, right? Which... Yeah, yeah. And also think about the marine mammals, you mm -hmm. know, the, the whale rus and the, and the whales, they would probably be too, uh, you know, too big and too uh, forceful to, uh, to be hunted in the early days. But some types would uh, be uh, easier to capture. And also they would, you know, they, they come ashore when they die and also they come ashore by their own mistakes, uh, navigational mistakes. And we have a lot of whalebone uh, use in, uh, in the Iron Age. Um, and seals, huge, you know, um, when you think about the energy source, the, the fat, it would be um, important for their diet. And they're delicious. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and very cute, so... <laughs> I, I feel and, uh, like I, I could get a seal because yeah. I'm not the best hunter, but I feel like a seal I could get because I, um, I, I, I wouldn't want to just try to get a seal, my friends. <laughs> How <laughs> they quick can, be can they be? Fierce. <laughs> they can be kind of fierce. I'm just thinking of like the baby, the cute white ones, and I'm like, I could. Um, that's because oh, that's the Labrador stuff. That, that has nothing to do with the proper Arctic. That that's all Greenpeace that has warped your mind, my friend. <laughs> oh. so i couldn't just catch a seal well in the beginning there were a lot of seals here but they of course they learned fast so they moved away and then they learned not to lie on the beach but rather find the rocks out in the sea and you know throw their youngs on those rocks instead um, and eventually, like in the area here, they a lot of species disappeared. Uh, we have some, I think it's a gray seal in English. We have it still, but it's um, it's not the same as it was in the Iron Age. Also the whale rust and uh, mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. No, but it's, it's a rich area. Um, and also when you think about being a farmer and, you know, uh, in the winter time, the coastal area doesn't freeze. So you would have these small plants, like the, the plants that stay green whole year round. They would be growing there in that region. So your sheep and goats could walk there like almost year round, get their own food. It does. It, it actually sounds very rich in resources, very different to what I was expecting. Um, <laughs> as I guess you say with a, with a whale, there's a lot. A whale's a big thing. <laughs> there's a lot of stuff you can do with that. And I assume they, they traded. Um, so again, was was the North seen as a, a single kingdom or was it different tribes that just got along? Or did they kind of, did they f war amongst each other? Everything you said is true. Oh. Uh, okay. So you can, it's, it's around the third century, so 200 AD, that we see that these... Um, groups they start to get bigger and they start to become groups of people from um, yeah, more different families and they start to um, become socially layered so we we see we notice this for example in the grave material where uh, you can see differences between people buried very poorly and people buried uh, with uh, prestige items so you can see that um, yeah, there is this uh, social division and it gets uh, more and more visibly in the archaeological records throughout the Iron Age. And so what we, how we look at this today is that we call it um, friendship ties. It's not really a friendship like you have today with a friend. It is more uh, a um, transactional, formal uh, bond you have with a person 
you can imagine maybe with oath swearing and loyalty being a huge part of this, where the chieftain would provide um, security, protection, and the farmer connected to him, the leader of the household would provide him with resources. So perhaps a part of his yearly uh, harvest, you know? So you can imagine these, these networks of farmers being connected to a chieftain and also these farmers having relationships like the, the um, friendship ties with each other, supporting each other. And, um, and this was the, the, the whole uh, foundation of, uh, of these units. And then they got bigger and bigger and bigger. And sometimes through alliances, sometimes through war or, yeah. So you have different um, methods, but the outcome was in the North is that you can see that it gets, like the region is just expanding, expanding. So it starts around where I live right now. There is one theory even that the Lada uh, lineage uh, came from here, from Osa on the, the island of Anaya, where I live, and that they expanded. So I am just above Lufoten, and, um, and it's very interesting to see that um, these, um, I know, have you, have you talked about the, the thing? It's been mentioned once in a while. <laughs> <laughs> it's like this, this um, meeting place where everything like political, judicial, uh, social, religious, everything would be um, discussed. And these um, courtyard sites, as we call them today, they are found throughout and you can study them to see how a political area expanded throughout time. But to go back to the point, um, you can see it's, it's expanding and getting bigger and bigger. And then the chieftains, uh, at one point in time, they um, called themselves or were called kings. So suddenly you have another division. So you have, you know, you have the slaves, farmers, and then you have the chieftains. And then at some point, the sources talk about kings and about uh, Jarl, and, and you get these different titles. It's difficult for us to know exactly what the titles meant, but most importantly, it just meant that there was another layer, uh, someone even bigger. And what happened was is that the, uh, the powerful family, it's, they traveled further south. So they, it, it became like a big network. So they had their um, chieftains loyal to them along the whole coast. And then in the end, you know, in the, in, in the start, at the start of the Viking Age, they had secured a safe trade route from the south to the north, the whole coast. They had all their connections to the interior and their resource base was enormous. So it, it became like a big block, like the, the north. So uh, in the Viking Age, you would have different kings fighting it out in the south like the big, the round part of Norway, the south. And then you would have this shape of Norway where you would have uh, Trøndelag, very powerful also in the Viking Age, producing a lot of iron and likely importing it or exporting it to us, everything to the north. And then the north would provide with all the uh, resources, like the, the gold from the north. So the, um, the Arctic animals, um, back then, the first from these winter animals, it was so valuable, both in Norway and also in Europe, that it was just, yeah, the, the amount of prestige items coming back is, is for us today very difficult to understand, um, but it was huge. We can see one of the things that was probably a major uh, industry from at least the late Iron Age is uh, uh, walrus hunting, which starts in northern Norway. And then when the walruses are depleted, they move to Iceland. Like the, we know now that Iceland had a walrus population um, before the Vikings showed up. 
Um, just like they also had trees before the Vikings showed up. <laughs> um, and, and I mean, we can see, of course, we know from the items that, that we find in medieval Bergen, for instance, that, that this was a major um, uh, source of, 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 um, of riches in, in Western Norway. Um, so, so and, I mean, I, th I think it's very obvious that the, the North has simply been one of those places where you, you can amass a, a huge amount of wealth and at the same time also be uh, shielded enough from, from all of those uh, uh, skirmishes uh, among all the power-hungry, greedy people in the, in the southern parts, right? Yeah, it's, it's insane when you look at the, um, like the archaeological remnants of this. It almost feels industrial, like the proportions of it, those pits used for extracting the oil from the walrus, the, the amount of people working there and uh, collaborating, you know, and the, and the yearly fisheries is like, it was so organized and it was huge. It's also the same with the, the reindeer. The wild reindeer from back then you have these systems of pits and and outposts and leading fences over huge areas where herds were driven into lakes and from edges and you know like mass hunting mass trapping and when you look at the the small farms in that area it's like how how did they have the manpower it's like you have these cute farmsteads there. So, you know, a, a chieftain would be very, uh, very good at organizing and, you know, gathering huge group, like, a, yeah, like a man force to execute these missions and likely together with this army to get these resources. Yes. And also, so just for, for, for clarification, for anybody who's listening to this and thinking about, well, what is actually the size of this, this area and all that stuff? Um, I, I would encourage anyone who's curious about those kinds of things to go to the, uh, the site, uh, tr size.com where you can actually compare country sizes around the world. And one of the things that you note, if you take Norway and then place it on the east coast of, of the United States, it stretches from approximately New York to Florida. That's how big it is for any Americans who need any, uh, um, any comparison here. <laughs> That's kind of large, you know. <laughs> so it's a big, big place. That is a big place. <laughs> so... Are the Sami just a single tribe within the north? Or is, is it like a bunch of different tribes that have just come under that title? It, it would be different tribes. Um, it's, as I said, difficult to put, like, put them in a category. For me, the easiest thing is to think about the language. Uh, so you had these tribes, some of them spoke uh, a language connected to the Euralian family, others to the Germanic family. So it's a, like a before, 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 before Norse came into being. That would be a good separation. But of course, language from that time didn't reflect in the sources. So archaeologists, they try to find indicators like... Um, you know, like the fashion statements. But at the same time, that would be traded. It would be uh, given to the others as a, as a gift, as a token of appreciation. And it's a very, it's a mixture. So something that archaeologists do is that they look at the whole site. So not just one building site, but like a big area. And then they can say a bit more about uh, how to label it. So what we see, these uh, Sami tribes, they, uh, they lived in different areas compared to the Norse tribes. So the Norse tribes very typically here in the north uh, located themselves along the outer coast. So um, yeah, and then along the rivers going inland. But when you look at the marshes and like the mountain slopes and the interior, there we have a lot of Sami settlements. And it's 
it, you know, it reflects a different lifestyle, even though also Sami people came to the coast and also were part of the fishing tradition. Um, they very smartly adapted to the huge request, the huge demand for these hunting goods, which were so valuable and so, um, you know, seem, seem as exquisite for the South that they just specialized in getting that and trading it with the Norse chieftains and those Norse chieftains traded it with south uh, southern chieftains and also europe and yeah england and etc so you get this specialization like two different lifestyles two different ways of um, utilizing the resources so there are a couple of things when we uh, when i teach about this subject in uh, in college um one of the, the, the things about Sami today is that Sami ethnicity and um, self-identification, all of these aspects, have sort of been forced into fixed categories thanks to Nordic nationalisms in different ways. So you have Norwegians and Swedes and, and Finns um, all trying to figure out who they are through the 17 and 1800s. And that has a major uh, implication for Sami. Um, and especially because Sami in, in the north, uh, in Norway and, um, uh, and Sweden and Finland live in nomadic uh, lifestyles. So they would be crossing the borders. And that, in, uh, especially to Norway, becomes a, a huge problem in terms of border integrity in, in a time where you're like, you know, Sweden, please fuck off. Um, we in in the in the nineteenth century, after the the era of Danish uh, um, 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 uh, dominance in in Norway. So so there's 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 a lot of modern also uh, colonial complications involved here, and you know, purposeful cultural and sometimes even bordering ethnic genocide on the Sami as well. And so in modern times, the Sami have then you know, come together and 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 trying to identify themselves as a ethnic group of some kind um, uh, under the this um, uh, concept of Sami Etnan, which um, has then eventually turned into Sakmi, the uh, the now the, the Sami territories that have some kind of uh, internal uh, sovereignty and. And also, you know, uh, um, cross the border between Sweden and Norway and Finland. There are also Sami in Russia, uh, but they're sort of left out of the scheme because uh, the Russians are notoriously difficult to deal with when it comes to what they call sparse populations. Uh, that's what we would call indigenous peoples. Um, so, so, so the Sami in in, in Russia have a, uh, as far as I can see, historically, a, still uh, a much harder time. Whereas now you see Sami have gained a lot of, um, you know, uh, political rights that are still being violated in different ways, nonetheless. But yeah, today, today the Sami heritage is, uh, you know, um, protected. Uh, kids in school they learn about the Sami. It's it's very highlighted that it, this is part of our, you know, our country. And it's true that, you know, what happened in 1900s, it's a very dark, uh, terrible uh, thing. And it's especially because it's, it's not that long ago. So it's, it's difficult. Um, at the same time, I think it's important not to forget the biggest part of history where, you know, the Norse and the Sami population lived together. And sometimes... You know, think that the terrible things from recent, more recent history casts a shadow uh, on the early things. But um, I think it's important to to realize the the beginning, because you know, when you look at these these sites, you can see that here where I live, you know, in the uh, along the coast, the islands here, it's just it's such a small distance. It's like one or two kilometers in between. So they they had a lot of contact they weren't isolated at all and you can you know you can imagine these long-lasting uh, friendship ties between chieftains and the Sami and 
learning each other's language, you know, and being being very much integrated with each other. And then, of course, you have you have the end of the Viking Age where, yeah, Norway becomes unified. And then in the medieval periods, then we start, you know, then, then it gets worse. Then you have these, um, the tax system that comes and then it's a taxation on the Sami and you have them being pressured out of areas. And yeah, you have these two clashing ways of life. It, it, it's, it's strange because here in Norway, you know, when you look at everything that is published online, it's a lot of focus on the negative, on the, on the of course, the latest history. And it's, it should, it should be, you know, we should learn about that, but we shouldn't forget that in the beginning we were collaborating and it's the whole basis for, yeah, for the population. That's really interesting. I mean, am I way off in thinking, or can you draw comparisons with how Native Americans have been sort of treated in the USA? It's, to me, like I say, someone coming from, I guess, from a very ignorant standpoint, it sounds very similar. There are, there are certain aspects of, of the treatment of the Sami in the 19th century, early 20th century that are very similar. Like, for instance, residential schools, um, a, you know, you're being forbidden to speak your language. Um, if you do speak your language in school, you get beaten. Um, you know, those kinds of things that have left a massive scar on the Sami population today. Um, I, I, I personally find the, the history fascinating and, and I'm well aware of the, uh, the connections and, and, and the, um, the influence, the cultural influence that Sami had on, on the Germanic speaking populations and the Iron Age and, and the Viking Age. Great example is Valsiata in Sweden, where you have uh, sort of like proto-Viking Age boat burials with Sami tents on them as a great example of a, of a you know, mixed cultures. Um, but, but on the other hand, we also have that uh, more, more recent history, which is still the main problem and issue for, for modern Sami who are still not having their rights um, um, uh, respected in many ways. There was just... In, in 2018, there was a case in Norway that had to go to the international court, as far as I remember, where uh, uh, the Norwegian government demanded of a Sami reindeer herder that he called half of his herd because it was, you know, hurting the, uh, the, 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 the flora of the tundra. And it's like they, they, wouldn't, they wouldn't do that to some farmer in, in Sutton. <laughs> they wouldn't tell him to to uh, shut down production of half of his uh, his farms, right? Um, because it was, I don't know, uh, putting too much, much nitrate out of the fjord um, and, and thereby killing the fish population. So, so those kinds of things are still happening. There's still a lack of attention to, to the lifestyle, right? And that, that's, a, that's a really important real world issue that Sami have right now, right? Um, but but I mean it's uh, it's it's important to uh, to understand that prior to Christianity primarily right uh, there was a, um, a, 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 a I guess you could call it a kind of equilibrium right where you had a more equitable interaction between the population groups in Scandinavia. Yeah, probably and, you you scratch my back, I scratch your back. If we, I've got something to give you, you've got something to give me. We don't care. What each other believes because we're both getting a little bit of something from it yeah and, and you don't have a lot of hang-ups right but the sami become and the reason i'm highlighting christianity here is that the sami become inscribed in norwegian law in the uh, in the in the 13th century primarily as the ones who are, who are primarily uh responsible for uh heathenry and witchcraft and that kind of stuff so the sami as a population become more and more ostracized in a very negative sense, right? And that sort of, you know, precipitates into future centuries. Do they ever convert to Christianity? Or... Yeah, yeah. Okay. But, but only, so So what we see is, um, is that there's a huge push uh, from the late 1600s from the Danish king, when we're speaking about Norway, um, uh, to, to Christianize the North. They, they are sort of in a sense Christianized, right? But they have a lot of 
you know, local traditions and a lot of that stuff. So the Danish king starts sending more and more missionaries or priests or whatever you want to call them uh, up there. And then um, that in the 1700s gets even worse because Dan Denmark also becomes a pietist country. Uh, it's it's the sort of the only country uh, that has uh, that adopts fully the the pietist uh, movement, which is a North German Protestant movement, and um, and that is that is sort of uh, that is a very Puritan um, type of Christianity, which you know is is against you know everything. Stop being human, um, pretty much, and there you go, right? And and that has that has some serious uh, implications for the the Sami. And then you also have local preachers up there, and uh, one of them is uh, Los Estadios, who sort of becomes a a sort of like a a, a, a grandfather of a type of um, of Lutheranism that is adopted among the Sami, which is very anti-alcohol, for instance. And there's still many Sami who identify as Estadians. Um, so, it seems they yeah. held on for quite a while compared they, to they the Christianization yeah, yeah. of the, the south of Norway happens in, help me out? <laughs> in the late 900s, my friend. <laughs> That's exactly what I was thinking, but I just didn't want to say it. So you're talking, you know, they held on for, what, five, six hundred years. Well, yeah, I mean, it really depends on how you want to define being Christian and not being Christian, because I'm sure that, you know, in the 1300s, if, if you encounter some Sami person and, and ask them, are you Christian? They would probably say yes. Um, they had probably been in contact with, with the church in some way or another, right? But Probably learned to lie. Uh, <laughs> not, <laughs> not, just nod your head and say, yeah. There's <laughs> plenty of people around the world who have learned to lie, my friend, <laughs> on that, exactly. with that specific one. But yeah, so then, but but you also have just like the continuation of local practices, right? Which you also had in the you know the early conversion period in, among the sedentary Scandinavians, the Germanic-speaking ones, right? Um, in the 900s, in the thousands, the 1100s, 1200s, even you have syncretism in different ways, a direct interpretation of of Christianity based off of the pre-Christian religion, right? And that is the, the, that is the same in, in the North. That is the same among the Sami. But then that gets cast as like evil heathenry later on, right? Mm -hmm. yeah, it's okay. interesting studying Christianization uh, everywhere, actually, because you it's, it's all, it always adapts some of the local traditions and the beliefs. Like Jesus, the first impressions of him it, it looks like a chieftain like the almighty chieftain you know and then uh, you can see how it changes and becomes more recognizable as christian for us today in you know in uh, early medieval time but it's that's a very cool thing to um to uh, actually to find the those early uh, impressions those early uh, ornamentations of christian uh, things and then see the yeah, uh, overlap with with the uh, the Viking traditions and the Viking way of looking at uh, Christianity, but uh, it's it was introduced in that way. Like you have uh, you have this uh, all powerful chieftain, which is more powerful than the local gods. So he he gets he kind of gets adapted and introduced on the premises of the old Norse religion. A great example for anybody who's interested in, in reading a sort of like a narrative that's based off of that translation from like the like Christ into sort of like a chieftain with badass little castle and sword and, and the apostles are his warriors, all that stuff. You should read the uh, the old Saxon gospel, um, Heliand where the you know the, the the whole story about jesus and all that stuff is like taking place in northern europe and and, and jesus is like this warrior with a sword and everything it's pretty cool yeah okay so i just want to quickly recap for my own for my own mind and hopefully for anybody else because we haven't really spoken about this topic before um so geographically we have the, the nordic peoples in the south of norway and then up along the coast. Am I right with that? And then inland, kind of in the mountain regions, 
of the Sami? In the south, they were more uh, isolated and also very far up in the north, they were more isolated. But then in this area where I am along the coast, the distance was very short. So you have these areas where they are intertwined. But it's it's very difficult to give this general impression because it's very um, you have these local differences. Mm-hmm. But um, but yeah, so so Norway popula- populated by groups, tribes, some identifying uh, as Norse, uh, others as Sami. But at that time, they didn't use these words, of course. Mm-hmm. They no, didn't put their label like we do. <laughs> Uh, so they, yeah. So, but they identified with their own tribe, and po- uh, probably, uh, of course, they they understood that it was a if they met a different tribe belonging to a different language group, um, but they still would see each other as like tribes, you know. So they could be friends with those Norse uh, tribes, but then enemies with those Norse tribes. So I think the best terminology for this is Germanic-speaking Scandinavians and Sami. Um, you can you can call them Norse, but that's a problematic misnomer when it comes to uh, well prior to 1100, because the the word doesn't really apply uh, before the 1100s where you have to split between West Nordic and East Nordic. Um, but I mean the the term Nordic is sort of more inclusive nowadays for everybody who lives in that region in general. So so that's why it's also not really working out that well to say these Nordic peoples and then the Sami because the Sami are also Nordic people. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay. So, okay, to rephrase, so you have the Germanic-speaking peoples in the south and up the coast, and then you have the (laughs) Uralian-speaking peoples in kind of the hills, and that would be the Sami people. And the marshes and the interior. Yeah. Okay. so do we know what the Sami believed in compared to the Germanic-speaking people? So obviously we, we have an idea, I guess, of Nordic mythology and that kind of, kind of stuff. Are, they, are the Sami believing in the, the same thing or is it completely different? Well, today we study it as a different religion. Okay. Uh, we label it as a different religion. Um, it's it's of course not without difficulty to pinpoint exactly what the religion was about, but uh, there are some things, some highlights, and interesting as interestingly or uh, logically, uh, it shows a lot of similarities with other uh, re- uh, religions from the polar region, like the from other uh, countries as well, other continents. It's very interesting to uh, to study that, but. Um, Basically, they had, um, um, so they also believed in in different gods in the same way as the Norse did. Um, and but but a, a big thing with the Sami religion was is that they uh, had this embodiment of uh, natural obstacles, like um, uh, like a big rock formation having a like a giving it a soul, <laughs> if you understand what I mean like it was more it was more attached to to nature compared to the to the Norse perhaps um is, if I would is that have animism to... yeah, that would something? be animism I would have to disagree I would have to disagree in terms of that it was more attached to nature than than the Germanic speaking people's religions I think what we see what we see in a, as sort of like if if, if I can say a major difference if, between the two is that what we see is that the the, the Germanic speaking peoples they um, they set, start centering their or focusing their religion around chieftains from the five hundreds and onwards. So we see, get these centers of power where you know religious activity is also focused, and you get quote unquote temple sites as well emerging right so that's that's a an a, a sort of like a, a governmental aspect that where the religion is then included which you don't see with sami right yeah but yeah it's it's true the sami was it wasn't as layered it's difficult because of course the the names of the gods and how the gods are described their uh, attribute you know their attributes they feel very different so it feels like two very different religions but when you look at it more like from a, from above, you 
we have a lot of similarities both in practices and in you know what is considered to be to have a, um, a religious um, layer to it so or a value so a lot of natural yeah formations in both religions are uh, are being used I mean, judging from the the written sagas, they are of course a poor source to religion, and and a lot of other things. <laughs> but judging from what they're saying in terms of like uh, or describing in terms of like what a vulva is and the type of rituals that the vulur would have, it that looks like that is a a technique that has probably come straight from the Sami, right? That the that the, the Germanic speaking uh, peoples in Scandinavia has sort of like adopted and learned and possibly quite often the specialists would be Sami, right? You see this situation of like going to the Sami to, to like learn things about divination and stuff like that primarily. And you also even see lost and for, you know, you know making that illegal later on in the, in the 13th century. So, so they, I think in a pre-Christian context, it looks like the Sami were very much respected for their abilities with these things, with this, you know, that stuff that we could call shamanism, um, right? And in sort of a, yeah, it's <laughs> it's hard to define what that technique is, you know. It's very <laughs> difficult, especially because today we have our modern, you know, viewpoints, and then we try to put it on something from way back then. And the archaeological record doesn't really give this division at all. It gives more, uh, you know, it gives a picture of complete mixtures and adoptions and adaptations and, yeah, hybrids. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, and of course, we like to organize, we like to pinpoint what was the difference, what characterizes, but it's, um, it's not that easy with um, the early history. And so, yeah. Do you think it's likely, because you said that there's similarities and there's differences, that they, both these religions started out in the same place and then in the same way that the languages i guess split and went different directions and then ended up coming back together from the south and the north of norway that the then they get the religions almost come back together well you know as we it's so it's such a difficult topic because you can trace people's movements through dna or you know ethnicity or you can use language so when you have the the sami and the, and the germanic people of course their split was very early on developing very different language uh, families so, so it just depends how far back in time are you willing to go well, that's what i'm wondering if are if, we going to africa or <laughs> if back at that original point maybe the religion was the same and then as they split the, the same religion got split and then different they then adapted it into their own their own ways. It's so difficult because this people spread in groups, you know, from the very moment, you know, they existed. And then way later, some of these groups, you know, came in different from different directions. But so much time has passed. So it's it's almost an impossible question. Um so if you look at it in terms of like zones and, and regions, um, you mentioned, for instance, that, that the Sami traditions, they belong to what we call the circumpolar sphere, right? We can say that about a lot of Scandinavian culture in general, uh, when, we, when we look at uh, Danish and Swedish and Norwegian, um, now we call them that, but that was of course not what, what, they, what they were back in the Iron Age. These traditions, there, there are certain aspects of them. We can easily see it influence from that circumpolar uh, uh, cultural sphere, and there are aspects that we can see that are, we can easily identify as influence from, say, the Mediterranean area, um, and even beyond that. Right. So, you know, the the the, uh, the Viking Age monumentalism 
like the rune stones and all that stuff. That's something that the Vikings, they're like or Scandinavians in the Viking age. Let's not call them Vikings because uh, they weren't all Vikings. <laughs> they're looking at, at what's happening down south. They're looking at what's happening in Rhineland, what's happening in the French area, what's happening in the English area. And they're like, we want cool monuments too. And that's how they, they make those, right? And then the same way when they start building, like they really go hard at like, let's build temple complexes or whatever we want to call them um they're looking at uh charlemagne they're looking at what what he's he's build, building in Aachen, right uh his his nice little castle there like there there are theories about especially the, the site at teaser in denmark it's like directly sort of like an attempt to copy sort of a, a, a blueprint of that in in a in a, in a sort of um you know, I live in a hut version of it, right? And then you, you know, you can also find uh, so so many other interesting things, like um, in the creation story in Verlusbau, for instance, that gives us like this these few details about how the world might have been created. That story looks very similar to what we find in the Galavala and what we find in Siberian traditions and even in North American traditions. And then we also can see, you know, other other ideas uh, circulating, you know, in folk tales of all over Scandinavia. You have the idea that seals they they have a person inside them, right? So the idea that you know sometimes you meet a naked lady on the beach somewhere, and that's because she's taken her seal coat off, yeah. right? Isn't that this, especially strong in like Ireland and like? Scotland. It is also, yeah, it's also very strong in Ireland and Scotland. There are plenty of Norwegian and Danish folktales and Icelandic folktales about this as well. And Greenlandic, Inuit folktales about it. You have Inuit folktales about it in Nunavut as well. So obviously there's like a lot of like crossovers and, and interactions culturally. And and that's, I think, is, is a very important thing to keep in mind as well. That they these things they they don't have to necessarily be ancient all the time. They could have been exchanged um, much more recently as well. And of course, the the runes, uh, you know, it wasn't a Viking Age invention. You know, it was from way earlier in the Iron Age, probably the first century AD, and it was shared among all the Germanic tribes. So it wasn't even, you know, it's not even the Norwegians were. Yeah, and most recent inscription from the Czech Republic also has Slavic inscriptions with runes. So now we also have Slavic peoples using runes. <laughs> yeah, and it, but the, 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 the one cool thing is that, you know, all the other countries were Christianized very early. So they adopted the, the Latin script and they stopped using the runes at a very early age while in Scandinavia. They didn't, and they could continue using the rooms and rooms, and also develop them. So you have this huge development of, of course, the the language, and then also the the rooms themselves uh, reflecting that. And you have then uh, different runic uh, ways of writing, different styles, different dialects, and of course, then when the Vikings. Uh, traveled across, you know, in their expeditions, they brought with them the runes. So then you, you can find those uh, everywhere. But, um, but that, that's the one cool thing, that's the, the runic writing system continued here and uh, gives us a unique uh, source material to be able to study it. You know, we have um, newer sources than from the continent. But it's it's something that is way older than most people realize, and was shared, you know, like the the religion and the religious ideas among all Germanic tribes. Perfect. I think I think that's the show. I think we're we're done. Unless there's anything else you you feel we should know about the uh, the north of Norway. Come visit. It's very beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> You get Absolutely. you have great cod. Yeah. <laughs> it's a great country. It's, um, <laughs> it's very expensive living though. It's the good stuff in life, like alcohol and uh, cigarettes and stuff like <laughs> very expensive. <laughs> but don't come here for the food and the wine, but come here for the nature. 
Perfect. So we can buy our podcast house cheaply. Yeah. Yeah. But we can't party there no. cheaply. Oh, dude, we'll, we'll just have to like, we'll take a boat and then we'll load it up with goods from England mm-hmm. and then we'll just sail it over. And there you go. Yeah. You're allowed okay. to, I think, two liters of hard, like whiskey. That's it. It's That's not going to last there, that long. Of, it's <laughs> Norway. There are lots of regulations. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> we'll, we'll both get arrested for trying to smuggle across in a dinghy. And they'll be like, what have you got in there? Which we'll like, oh, beer. They'll be expecting to find cocaine or heroin, but we'll like, okay, <laughs> just cases of beer. We have Boglands. Why not like, make whiskey here? Right, yeah. Yeah. perfect uh helena is there anything you want to shout out plug where people can find you find your social medias uh sure you can find me at the uh, viking helena viking dot helena and um i'll make a discount for anybody listening here and uh, matthias will uh, will uh, put that in the text later on so um so you guys can find it and because um, so you can get a discount on the book I wrote about uh, a typical settlement, Iron Age settlement in the coastal region. Cool. Oh, perfect. Shan will make sure he puts that in the. Don't give Matthias the credit. He doesn't do that kind of stuff. He just comes, <laughs> sits here, looks pretty, <laughs> and, and says stuff. Shan is the man behind the scenes. So let's. He will. He will put it in the show notes. Um, he will. Tag tag the uh, book and let people know what the discount is, and we can hopefully get send people to to pick it up. <laughs> Shen is definitely the man, but yeah, no. According to the last show, though, I have a lot of trust in him because I don't know if he even does his job. I just know that the episodes come out, and I've never listened back to it, so he could he could make me sound awful. It's just static. <laughs> That's it. He could just change my voice to a, a chipmunk or something every week. <laughs> I really hope he does. <laughs> Which he probably is going to do just for his last segment or something. <laughs> uh, Matthias, where can people find you? You can find me on Instagram by my name. It's just Nordvik. Yeah, it's too good, too good for Facebook these days. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> it's after we kept sending everyone to send your friend requests. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> I was like, better delete this. <laughs> All right. If you if you enjoy the show, please take a minute to leave us a five star and a positive review, preferably on iTunes because it really helps us bump up the chart. It helps new people find the show. If you want to support us a little bit further, Patreon is the best way so we can get that house in Norway. That's what that's going to be the new goal to aim for. <laughs> I'm down, man. <laughs> We've got a long way to go. So everybody, please pop over to uh, Patreon for slash Nordic Mythology Podcast. We have a bunch of different tiers. You get different things for each tier. Most importantly, every for every tier, you get to jump in and watch the show live. You can jump in on the live chat. There's always a good, good little bit of banter going on in there. You can also ask your questions live um, that we pick up on. Also, you get a bonus show every week. So alternate weeks, me and Matthias either sit down and do a Vikings watch long show where we watch an episode of the show, Vikings TV show and let you know what's real, what's not real and just have a good laugh. And on the other week, we do a saga episode where we, Matthias reads, well, Matthias has been reading the saga, but we're going to get guest readers in um, to read the saga and Matthias will kind of let you know. Again, we'll talk over talk over the saga, let you know what's going on. But we're finishing the saga of the Volsungs next, I think. Yes, yes. I think we are getting close to the end. I think we're getting to the good part where uh, Sigurd enters the, the scene to slay the dragon. Uh, Jonas Lorenzen, I think he's going to come and read read for us in his very posh voice. <laughs> <laughs> so he's he's going to come and read the saga whilst me and you get to just have a laugh and talk about it. Um, yeah, so if you pop over the Patreon, you can get access to them. They're Patreon-exclusive episodes. But in short, you get a bonus episode every week if you support us on Patreon. Um, you can also pop over to nodimythologypodcast.com and you can pick up a T-shirt. Uh, other than that, I think I've got everything apart from Naughty Mythology Podcast on all the social medias. I feel like my rant's getting longer at the end of every show. You kind of are. <laughs> <laughs> I really want the house in Norway, so just fuck everything else and just go to Patreon and support the show. All right. Thank you, Helena. Thank you very much for this. This has been a fun one.